If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, go ahead and open it to Judges chapter 4. Again, we'll be looking at Judges chapter 4. Judges chapter 4, we'll be looking at the entire chapter. And it says this, The Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, after Ehud had died. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazar. The commander of his forces was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth of the nations. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, because Jabin had 900 iron chariots, and he harshly oppressed them for 20 years. Deborah, a woman who was a prophetess and the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. It was her custom to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went up to her for judgment. She summoned Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, Hasn't the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go deploy the troops on Mount Tabor, and take with you ten thousand men from the Naphtalites and the Zebulonites. Then I will lure Sisera, commander of Jabin's forces, his chariots, and his army at the Wadi Kishon to fight against you, and I will hand him over to you. Brock said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. I will go with you, she said. But you will receive no honor on the road you are about to take, because the Lord will sell Sisera into a woman's hand. So Deborah got up and went with Barak to Kadesh. Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. Ten thousand men followed him, and Deborah also went with him. Now, the, now Heber the Kenite had moved away from the Kenites, the son of Hobab, Moses' father-in-law, and pitched his tent beside the oak tree of Zaanunim, which was near Kadesh. It was reported to Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoab, had gone up to Mount Tabor. Sisera son, summoned all of his 900 iron chariots and all the people who were with him from Harasheth of the nations to the Wadi Kishon. Then Deborah said to Barak, Move on, for this is the day the Lord has handed Sisera over to you. Hasn't the Lord gone before you? So Barak came down from Mount Tabor with the 10,000 men following him. The Lord threw Sisera, all of his charioteers, and all his army into confusion with the sword before Barak. Sisera left his chariot and fled on foot. Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harasheth of the nations, and the whole army of Sisera fell by the sword. Not a single man was left. Meanwhile, Sisera had fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because there was peace between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the family of Heber the Kenite. Jael went out to greet Sisera and said to him, Come in, my lord, come in with me. Don't be afraid. So he went into her tent, and she covered him with a rug. He said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. 
she opened a container of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him again. Then he said to her, Stand at the entrance to the tent. If a man comes to you and asks you, Is there a man here? Say, No. While he was sleeping from exhaustion, Heber's wife, Jael, took a tent peg, grabbed a hammer, and went silently to Sisera. She hammered the peg into his temple and drove it into the ground, and he died. When Barak arrived in pursuit of Sisera, Jael went out to greet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man you are looking for. So he went in with her, and there was Sisera lying dead with a tent peg through his temple. That day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites. The power of the Israelites continued to increase against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. God, we thank you for your word that you've given us. Help us to understand this these words from the story and help us to love you more and pursue um, godliness and, and desire to do the things that your word commands for us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, when I was in third grade, I entered a spelling bee contest that I took way too seriously. It meant domination over my opponents. And this was the closest to Rocky that I ever got personally. See, my mom would drill me word after word. For two weeks, I would study nonstop. And then I got to the class competition. And I decimated my opponents. One after one. They wouldn't be able to spell words, and they would sit down on their cold metal desks, and I destroyed them. And then next was the big tournament. The school-wide tournament. When all the third to fifth graders would gather in the auditorium and the top of every class would stand before the school and do a spelling bee. And this was my time to establish myself as a spelling god. As a third grader, I began to slaughter third graders, fourth graders, and fifth graders alike. And I made it to the final four. And once I got to the final four, I received the word imperative. I began to spell I-M-P-E-R. And then I began to pause. You see, I was so nervous about losing, I actually knew how to spell the word. But I hesitated. And then I ended up starting over, and I spelled it correctly as quickly as I could. I-M-P-E-R-A-T-I-V, right? Imperative. But the thing was, apparently starting over was against the rules. And I lost. And to me, fourth place is as good as last place, and I was a broken man. Now... I knew what I was supposed to do, but because of my hesitation, I momentarily lost faith in myself, and I lost at something that I was able to do. And some idiot fifth grader won the tournament. Now, there's a few things in life that are more important than spelling bees. But one of them is a life of faithfulness for the Christian. And we can actually look at this as a microcosm for how we live our lives. How often do we hesitate? When we try to live a life of faithfulness, 
When we know what we're supposed to do, but it might seem risky or audacious to us, and we begin to hesitate. And we might lose grip of something that God desires for us to do. See, in Judges chapter 4, we'll see how Barak's hesitation in trusting the Lord actually leads to his own downfall. So, here's the main idea that God wants us to know from this text. Which is that God's way is always the right way. So trust in Him. That God's way is always the right way, so we should trust in Him. And there's three commands that we can see from this text that we should follow. Firstly, that we should fear God over man. That we need to fear God over man. Secondly, that we need to rely on God over man. That we need to rely on God over man. And lastly, we need to rest in God over man. That we need to rest in God over man. So firstly, let's look at fearing God over man. Let's look at verse 1. The Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud had died. Now, for those of you who have been listening to these judges' sermons as we've been going through the book, this is exasperating to hear. The Israelites again did what was evil in the Lord's sight. And it might seem repetitious to repeat it again and again, but it's important to recognize how ridiculous this looks. We might get desensitized to hearing this or reading this in this book over and over again, but we have to understand how absolutely dumb this thing is. Think about it. God has redeemed his people again and again and again. And yet, again and again and again, the Israelite people mess up. And they don't do what is good before the sight of the Lord. And it's important to recognize this. This story would not have happened if Israel was just faithful to the Lord. But from their lack of fear of God, we can see that they end up in the same predicament again. And it should feel painful to us that it happens again. And it should also be a reminder for us that as we encounter sin and as we become deceived by sin, that it is never okay. That a repetitious lifestyle of lack of faithfulness to God is never okay. And we need to fear God over man. See, the world will tell us that it's okay. That it's just natural. That happens over and over again. But we can see clearly from this verse that it's not okay. It's never okay. Sin is never something that's okay. Look at verse 2. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazard. The commander of his forces was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth of the nations. So we can see the same thing happens again. They're unfaithful to God. God hands them over to a pagan king. So look at verse 3. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord because Jabin had 900 iron chariots, and he harshly oppressed them for 20 years. Now for us, when we hear iron chariots, you might be thinking of Prince of Egypt, the cartoon with the Egyptian king riding on chariots, and you might not feel the impact of what that is, but imagine this for a moment. You have 10,000 men. This other king has more men than you do, and he also has 900 tanks. 
Now, how do you think you're going to do in a battle against a guy who has 900 tanks? Not very well. And in this time, the iron chariots that Jabin has is the equivalent of a tank in terms of military advantage. Can you imagine getting dominated by a king who has 900 tanks? What could you possibly do to fight against a man like that? It's incredibly intimidating. And yet, if you look at the end of verse 3, they don't turn to God until the end of 20 years. Because then the Israelites cried out to the Lord after they get dominated. And until 20 years after he rules. Do you know who's scarier than the man who has 900 chariots? Yahweh, the creator of the universe. Think about it. What were the odds of Israel being able to escape Egypt? Nil. It was ridiculous to even attempt to escape Egypt. And yet Yahweh in his own power redeems the nation of Israel. And here you see a lack of faithfulness to God. And then they turn to him when they had no other hope. See, is it easy to forget God when you feel intimidated by formidable opponents, doesn't it? You look at the world's standards of competition... And you look at a man, you might begin to forget that God is an almighty God. But who is formidable before the creator of the universe? Nobody. And you know what? If Israel understood that from the beginning, then they would have never done this. Their disobedience was out of a lack of fear for God. Right? And as a result of that, their domination was out of their lack of fear for God. You see, they think of God as this magical um, vending machine of sorts of redemption. That God is there as our safety net. That if something goes wrong, we could turn to God and we'll be fine. But we can see here that God does not delight in evil. That God is the one that's actually handing them over. It's not that suddenly the Canaanites took over the nation of Israel and somehow Yahweh messed up, but actually it's God handing them over out of their disobedience. And it starts from the foundation of lacking fear for God over man. And we have to start there. We have to address it every single time. But because before you can even understand that God's way is the right way, you have to understand who God is and actually fear him for who he is. That God is an almighty God. That he is worthy of our faithfulness and worship. And if you forget that, then no matter what building that you try to build, it will be on shaky foundations. Because you'll have a shaky understanding of who God is. So again, we need to fear God over man. Secondly, we need to rely on God over man. We need to rely on God over man. Look at verse 4. Deborah, a woman who was a prophetess and the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. Now, Deborah is a judge, but the way that she was judging Israel was not by delivering Israel. So it's important to make a distinction here. Deborah is not a judge in the sense that she is literally delivering the nation of Israel. She's a judge in the sense that she's a legal judge. People will go to her And she would settle civil disputes as a prophetess of God. And we could see that in verses 5, in verse 5, that it was her custom to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and Israelites went up to her for judgment. 
So people would come up to Deborah with their problems, and then Deborah would settle the dispute under the palm tree of Deborah. Does that make sense? Okay. So then in verse 6, we see what actually is happening within this story. So she summons Barak, son of Abinuam, from Kadesh and Naphtali, and said to him, Hasn't the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go deploy the troops on Mount Tabor, and take with you 10,000 men from the Naphtalites and Zebulonites. Then I will lure Sisera, commander of Jabin's forces, his chariots and his army at the Wadi Kishon, to fight against you, and I will hand him over to you. So the command is very clear here. Deborah, as a prophetess of God, tells Barak, take 10,000 men to this place, to Wadi Kishon. But then we can see Barak's response in verse 8. He says, Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. You see, the modern way of saying this is, if I'm going down... You're going down with me, right? He's saying, put your money where your mouth is. If you're saying that God is telling me to do this, then come with me. Let's see where your chips really lie. Because guess what? If, you, if what you're telling me is lies, and it's not actually the word of God, and I'm not supposed to do this, then you're going to die with me. So this is a test from Barak. To see whether or not this is truly the word of God. And we can start to see here the, the, the deterioration of the faithfulness of judges throughout the book. See, before we see faithful judges. And now we're starting to see a judge who lacks faith in God. He lacks faith in God's prophet. And, she, and he refuses to go unless he has some form of validation or proof. Now think about this. Have you ever desired proof before you did something? Right? You tell God, you know what? I'm going to bargain with you here. I'll make you a deal. You do this for me, and then I'll know for sure that this is what you want from me, so I'll do it. And here we can see Barak doing that. And why is he doing that? Because he's relying on himself. He's relying on his own wit, on his own logic. Instead of blindly obeying God in faith, he decides to use his own rationality and relies on himself instead of God. Look at verse 9. So Deborah then responds, I will go with you, but you will receive no honor on the road you are about to take, because the Lord will sell Sisera into a woman's hand. So Deborah got up and went with Barak to Kadesh. You see, he will succeed in the words of Deborah. But he won't be able to take any of the credit because of his own hesitation. See, in in war, if you really want to grab the honor of battle, you kill the king. Right? You kill the greatest man. You kill the one that's leading the charge. That's how you get honor. And now Deborah is saying, because of your hesitation, because of your cowardice, You will succeed. God's plan will still carry through. But you, Barak, will receive no honor as a result of it. So we can see in verse 10 that Barak goes. Read with me. Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. Ten thousand men followed him, and Deborah also went with him. 
Now Heber the Kenite had moved away from the Kenites, the son of Hobab, Moses' father-in-law, and pitched his tent in the oak tree of Zaanim, which was near Kadesh. Now it was reported to Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoab, had gone up Mount Tabor. Sisera summoned all of his 900 iron chariots and all the people who were with him from the Herosheth of the nations to Wadi Kishon. So we can see here that everything goes exactly as planned. The bait works, and they end up coming to Wadi Kashan. Now, in verse 14, something very particular happens that we need to focus on. So look at verse 14. Then Deborah said to Barak, Move on, for this is the day the Lord has handed Sisera over to you. Hasn't the Lord gone before you? So Barak came down from Mount Tabor with the 10,000 men following him. Did you notice the way that Deborah phrased her statement to Barak? She says, hasn't the Lord gone before you? That's a declarative statement, right? She's saying that God has already gone so you can go in faith. Right? And it's easy for us to think that that's normal, that God always goes before us. And we become desensitized again to these phrases that we read over and over again in Scripture. But take a moment and think about this. Why do you think people on the battlefield rely on each other so much? Why do you think people on the battlefield trust each other? Isn't it because they're on the battlefield together? There's no better way to know that a guy has your back than a guy who's right next to you having your back, fighting together. And that's why we have shows like The Band of Brothers, and we can see camaraderie between other soldiers, because they have to rely on each other, because they're on the battlefield together. And what we see here in this verse is something even more profound than this. See, God is more reliable for you than a fellow soldier on the battlefield with you. And do you know why? Because God doesn't wait for you to go. He's already gone. He goes before you. In other words, He doesn't check to see if you're following Him. He goes already. And we can see here that we can have faith and rely on God as a reliable God Because He goes before us. There's no other group of people that we can rely on more than God, our Father. Look at verse 15. The Lord threw Sisera, all of his charioteers, and all his army into confusion uh, with the sword before Barak. Sisera left his chariot and fled on foot. Now, this verse doesn't go very much into detail, but in chapter 15, we can see that what actually happens is Wadi Kishan's nature goes into action. Wadi Kishan is a valley with a small little creek of water. But every now and then, the monsoon might hit, then there's a flash flood that occurs and washes away... um, a huge river before the valley. And we, if you look at verse 15, let me go ahead and find the verse really quick. Sorry. One moment. I cannot find the verse for my life. Okay, here we go. Verse 21 of chapter 15. 
chapter 15, verse 21, says this. The river Kishon swept them away. The ancient river, the river Kishon, march on my soul in strength. So it says that God threw all of Sisera, his charioteers, and all his army into confusion. And what happens is that the river suddenly bursts into life. And suddenly these iron chariots that are useful and are dominating like a tank become utterly useless in the mud, become rusted, start to wiggle around, become unreliable. And the horses obviously freak out. So imagine you running in a tank that you think is reliable and suddenly all of it is thrown into chaos. Chariots throwing men out of their original positions. Horses running without the guidance of the rider. And the Lord provides a way. And in verse 16, we can see what Barak does. Look with me. Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harasheth of the nations. And the whole army of Sisera fell by the sword, and not a single man was left. See, Barak completes the command. But if you want to see something particular here, you can actually see that Barak pursues this army incredibly far. Right? They pursue the army incredibly far. Now the question would be, and Harasheth of the nations is an incredibly far distance from Wadi Kishon. So why does Barak chase him this far? See, the reason is because he hasn't killed Sisera. And he wants to kill the commander. Because when you kill the commander, then you show your dominance over these people. And he wants that honor. But we can see here that the honor goes to the one that takes down the king. See, the honor goes to the one that takes down the king. And he chases them as far as he can, but he still can't get the honor because of the moment of hesitation that he had. See what happens when you don't rely on God? There's a story here for us to understand that we need to rely on God solely. This is a warning for us. That God will continue to be faithful, but we as people of this faithful God need to be faithful to Him and need to have 100% of our trust in this God. So rely on God solely. Because here's the thing, there's no one else more reliable. There's no one else. All of our successes is by God's grace anyway. Right? So we shouldn't rely on ourselves. We need to rely 100% on God. So that's point number two, to rely on God over man. And number three, to rest in God over man. To rest in God over man. So here's a story. Sisera flees on foot. How shameful, running like one of his regular soldiers, away from the battlefield. And he finally lands at the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Imagine him running for miles and miles and miles through the desert, trying to find some form of solace. And then he finds the tent, the wife of one of his allies, and he sighs a breath of relief. Thank goodness I found this tent. So he goes in. And Jael goes out to greet him, saying, Come in, my Lord. Come in with me. Don't be afraid. And he's thinking to himself, Finally, 
Right? Thank goodness. Right? I found something. Like, this is a miracle in the desert. An oasis has appeared for me. I can rest, finally, knowing that I am safe in the hands of this woman. So he goes into the tent. And she covers him with a rug. And he says to her, Give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. And he open, and she opens up a container of milk, gave him something to drink, and then covers him. And he tells her, Hey, stand guard for me. Look outside. If anyone asks you, if you've seen a man here, tell him, No, I haven't seen anything. And let them just move on. And he's thinking, I got all my corners covered. I'm good. All my men might have died, but I am safe here. Firstly, the first thing that we need to observe is, how pathetic does that look? You're leading a large army with 900 iron chariots. And rather than dying with your men, you choose to run away from them. What a pitiful example of leadership on behalf of Sisera. Second thing that we can observe here is that Sisera bases all of his faith on this random hope that he found. You see, when you're running that long in the desert, you kind of grasp onto anything that you can, right? And Sisera thinks to himself, man, I hit the jackpot. This is exactly what I need. I will be safe in her hands. But we know that that isn't true. Look at verse 21. While he was sleeping from exhaustion, Heber's wife, Jael, took a tent peg, grabbed a hammer, and went silently to Sisera. And then she hammered the peg into his temple and drove it into the ground, and he died. Whoa, right? So we can see here that this is quite the twist. Nobody would expect this. That Jael, one of his allies, would drive a tent peg into his chest. This is the opposite of what he would expect from one of his allies, right? But we can actually see that the story set this up a while back. Turn with me to verse 11 in the same chapter. Now Heber the Kenite had moved away from the Kenites the son of Habab, Moses' father-in-law, and pitched his tent beside the oak tree of Zaananim, which was near Kadesh. Now, what does this verse mean? It means the Heber the Kenite is distantly related to the Israelites. Now, think about this. Sisera is running straight to this tent, thinking that he will have full safety there. And yet... His ally's allegiance lies to the very enemy that he was fleeing from. Think about that. See, here's a question that we need to ask ourselves. Where do you find refuge? Where do you find refuge? And something that we need to think about. Because the thing that you might be banking your life on might be the very thing that drives a peg into your chest. So, if you're a non-Christian here tonight, I wonder where you place your faith. What are you banking on? Is it money? We know that money doesn't last. And at the root of all evil is money. And when you die, you can't take money with you. Is it your family? You might be able to leave a great legacy for your family. You might be able to love them with all that you have. But your sin still will not be covered before the Creator. 
You might think that the solution is to ignore things. To kind of live life carefully and not step on anyone's toes. But in reality, we can see that that won't be sufficient for you till the end. The only refuge that won't fail for you is the one that goes before. Is the one that we can have 100% reliance on. He's the only one that we can have rest in. Now, if you are a non-Christian this morning, you're hearing me say this, you might be saying, that sounds great and dandy. But I don't see God going out and demolishing 900 iron chariots for me. So, what's the big deal? Why should I rely on this God? Well, here's the truth for you, non-Christian. There is someone who goes before you, and his name is Jesus. There's no one else. You see, your sin is a problem, and you know it. Romans 1 says that everyone knows that there is a God, and that he is a holy creator. And you know that your sins are wrong. And you know that in order for true justice to exist, there has to be payment for it. And Jesus, fully man and fully God, lives a perfect life on earth and dies for your sin and for my sin and resurrects again. You see, there is a God that goes before and His name is Jesus. Think about it. When chronologically did Jesus die? 2,000 years ago. right? Which means all of our sins, past, present, and future... We're all future for Jesus. And He knew how bad your sin would be, and He went to the cross anyway. He goes before. So if you repent of your sin and put your faith in Him, then He will be 100% reliable. And you can have rest for the first time in your life in this God. For us as Christians... Let us never become so foolish or so fickle to forget this God. That this God who goes before for us, there is no greater sacrifice that He could have made than to send His Son to die for us. What more do we need to see for God to prove His faithfulness? Is He not worthy of 100% of our trust? We cannot afford to hesitate because the God that we have is so great. And we, re- and we need to fear, rely, and rest in this God. Because His way is always the right way. So we can trust in Him. And He will be faithful to see His way to completion. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your faithfulness that You go before for us. Let us never forget Help us to fear you. Help us to desire holiness and to pursue holiness because it brings you joy. Help us to not hesitate in and acting in faith because we know that you are a faithful God and you go before and that we can trust you. So we thank you for Jesus who goes before, who dies for our sin. We thank you for his sacrifice. And let us never forget Let's never be and never stop being in awe of this great sacrifice, and help us to to live out this reality throughout this week. In Jesus' name.
Amen.